This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Thank you very much, Roger, and uh, thanks to all of you for joining us this morning, our weekly get-together on the subject of food production, agriculture, conservation, and anything that goes with it. We've got a lot to talk about this morning, so uh, we're going to get to it because we have Jim Fazell standing by. We have Gary Pack of Twin Garden Farms standing by. We have Max Armstrong standing by. So we're going to lead off with Jim Fazell, and we'll get to Jim when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. No one has to explain stress to a farmer. That's like explaining wind shear to a pilot. Now, Mother Nature stresses corn the way markets, bankers, and politics can stress you. But there's a proven way to reduce stress. With Headline Amp Fungicide, you'll see the difference. It decreases stress from disease, drought, hail, and heat, so your corn can focus on what matters most, better yields. Talk to your local rep about Headline Amp Fungicide and BASF Plant Health. Always read and follow label directions. It's not too early to get it on your calendar. The 2019 Farm Progress Show will be here before you know it at Decatur, Illinois. It's sometimes called the World's Fair of Agriculture. And again, it will feature a colossal showcase for the major manufacturers rolling out their newest offerings. Get the dates on the calendar August 27th, 28th, and 29th. The Farm Progress Show, where business and tradition have come together for over 65 years. Keep an eye on the website, farmprogressshow.com. It's Jim Fazell time here on the Saturday Morning Show, our specialist in ornamental horticulture, to talk about what needs to be done now that the holiday is over. Jim, I hope you and Jane had a good Fourth of July. We had a very good Fourth of July, and we're continuing to enjoy this holiday weekend, extended weekend. Hope that you and Gloria are doing the same. Indeed, we Indeed we are, and it's been amazing to watch the corn grow in the last five or six days. This heat, humidity really pushes the crop along, doesn't it? It's exactly what the what the crops need, that 90-degree weather. Uh, it's a little hard on us if it's really humid, but, boy, the corn and beans just love it. That's what it takes, and if we continue to get this, I think our crops are going to be in, in pretty good shape where the where the guys could get them planted. You know, I just uh, I got my notes uh, on Friday from the, from the state about the degree day accumulation. We're still behind here from about, uh, it looks like Peoria North. We're still behind in uh, accumulated degree days, but we're catching up quickly and i think here and after a week of this kind of weather by the time we get the report next week we're going to find out that that uh, northern illinois is caught up to where it ought to be and that's exactly what we need in fact we could be a little bit higher than what we normally get without any trouble right now because it's it's time and and our crops and and everything that grows really needs that warmth that's what it expects here in this part of the world and that's what it needs so what are we looking at as far as uh, lawn or flower or vegetable problems well, there are some problems. Uh, when the weather turns hot, especially when it's wet, we have uh, some particular bugs and diseases that are expected. In fact, we can expect them to show up. They're going to do it every year when the weather's that way. Uh, foliar diseases on a lot of our plants 
particularly leaf spots. Uh, these show up on tomato plants as septoria, and they come out as early blight, and people may have read about these in garden columns and so forth. Uh, they're diseases that are caused by fungi that attack the plants, especially when you have a good heavy fruit load. The plant is weakened a little bit, so you get these foliar diseases. Uh, and mo- normally what I do is I just pick the leaves off that have it and put them into the into the trash, not into the recycler, but in a plastic bag and get rid of them. Um, or you can spray with Mancozeb or, or one of the copper fungicides, but you need to be very careful when you use those and use them absolutely according to label directions. Um, rose black spot is beginning to show up, and the way the answer to that is to keep the foliage dry. It's hard to do when it rains all the time, but if you're doing watering, make sure that you water early in the day so that the plant can dry off before nightfall. And if you have a lot of trouble with that, again, copper fungicides are pretty universal. They work very well. There's a particular one that works on the rose leaf spot called triforine. And if you buy rose fungicide, that's what's going to be in it. Now, those of us that grow the vines from the the walls of Wrigley Field, in fact, we have Wrigley Field ivy in our yard that we, we monitor so that if something happens, that we can call down to Wrigley and, talk, Wrigley and talk to the guys there and tell, hey, get out and get do your spraying because it's coming. Uh, copper fungicide, again, that's good old Bordeaux mixture. Uh, if you use it correctly, it works wonderfully. If you use it incorrectly, it can burn the foliage, but... Read the label direction. I keep saying that. That's that's very important. Uh, we do have some stem and root fungi that are showing up, and these are things that, that attack the bases of the plants when they stay too wet. And, of course, we've had plenty of that. It affects both the annual and perennial flowers, and we're having a lot of trouble with hosta this year with the hosta petiole blight, especially hosta that has stood in water. Now, hosta can stand wet conditions, and it's used as a pond plant or, or a near-pond plant in the areas around ponds. Uh, ponds because it will stand this moisture, but if it stays too wet, too hot, too long, uh, the stems begin to rot off. Um, Wilting of of the foliage uh, if you look down, you'll find out it's not just the leaf that's wilted, but the stem is, is damaged. Uh, poor drainage can cause this problem, poor soil management, where we just dig a six-inch uh, depth, uh, depth of uh, planting soil and fill it with uh, good organic material, but beneath it, it's rock-hard clay. You've got to dig down farther than just six inches if you're going to have good drainage. <clears throat> Again, if it's worth repeating watering. You know, we walk our neighborhood every morning uh, out for our daily constitutional, and we notice the lawns that that look good. We notice the lawns that are being watered every other day. I don't think we've really needed to water lawns anywhere around here, in our gardens anywhere around here, yet this year, and yet we see the sprinklers running all the time. Uh, Don't water unless the plants begin to wilt, then apply a one-inch application of water, and don't water again until the plants wilt again. Well, there are a lot of bugs showing up, too. I've just noticed uh, we haven't had as much rain as as uh, a lot of folks around us have had. In fact, it kind of misses us. But uh, we're beginning to find mites on the marigolds and on roses and on the squash vines. We have some mites that show up on those, either specks on the underside of the leaf. If you turn it over and, and you look at that speck, you'll find they're usually kind of reddish in color. And if you tap them a little bit, they'll move. Uh, that's Those are mites. If you have a hand lens, you can look at them real carefully, and they look like miniature spiders with eight, with eight legs. Uh, you can hose these off with a high-pressure hose, and that's what historically has been done to get them under control. Or you can use insecticidal soaps. Uh, there's not much else that will kill mites. Uh, squash vine bore adults are flying right now. These look like 
red moths flying over the vine plants. Um, you can put floating row covers over the top of your of your squash and cucumbers and so forth, uh, or you can spray with seven right down at the base. You don't need to spray all the foliage. These these little insects lay eggs at the base of the plant. The eggs get into these little petioles or big petioles on these vines, and they they eat them from the inside out, and then you'll find a leaf wilt. Then the whole vine wilts just about the time you want to pick your squash. White cabbage butterflies are flying as well. Uh, they, of course, lay eggs on cabbage and broccoli and related things. Uh, if you don't do something about it, you're going to have little green worms with your little green broccoli. Most of us don't really like that. Bacillus thuringiensis kerstaki, it's a... a Actually, it's a naturally occurring fungus that will attack these insects, uh, and that's what needs to be used on these plants. You can eat all the, the, the BT that you want. It won't hurt you, but it sure does a job on, on the on butterfly, in, butterfly larva. Uh, Japanese beetles are just beginning to fly. I found one out on my rose bush already this year. You need to get rid of them. Uh, seven will work, or the best thing to do, if you only have a few of them, is get a can full of soapy water, go out and uh, put it right underneath where you see one of these little critters and tap it, and that critter will fall into the water. And it can't get out again, so you've done it. You can flush them away or put them in the garbage or whatever you want to do with them, and that will solve the problem. Uh, you don't want to get into spraying if you can help it, but spraying with seven will work. Now, one of the things that we see all the time is the advertising for Japanese beetle traps. They are wonderful. They attract, attract Japanese beetles like nothing you can imagine. There's a pheromone in there, and these beetles think there's a female getting ready to mate. Works very well, except it doesn't catch all of them. So if you put one of these traps in your backyard, you're going to attract all the Japanese beetles from the neighborhood, and the ones that don't get into the trap are going to land on your plants and begin to feed. If you're going to use one of these, the best thing to do with it is to put it on a telephone pole out in the middle of Lake Michigan. <laughs> then you don't have to worry about getting them into your garden. Uh, we haven't said anything about lawns or briefly uh, water we did mention, but there are some some bugs that are beginning to show up right now. The sod webworm adults are flying. As they fly, uh, they lay eggs. Now, if when you're out in the in mowing the lawn, and if you notice little moths flying about waist high, skidding out ahead of the mower, digging back down into the grass or hiding, that's a sod webworm adult. Ten days from now, those eggs that they're dropping will begin to hatch, and they will hatch into little larvae that eat the tops off or the bases off of your of of your turf grass and if we have any dry weather you're going to find you have a lot of dead spots out in your lawn if you look down in the bottom of those you're going to find these little caterpillars if you have a lot of of uh, birds that are coming in and pecking around especially blackbirds into your yard you can be pretty sure that you've got sod webworms seven carbaryl sprayed now uh, we'll get these they're going to hatch in about 10 days and that will work very well Grubs, you can't kill them right now because the eggs are being laid, but you can put down grub eggs or merit or one of those uh, long-term insecticides, and that'll solve that problem. Anyway, lots of things going on. Um, it's a great holiday weekend. I hope all, everybody is enjoying it as we are, and we need to celebrate the freedoms we have in this great land of ours. Indeed we do, and I hope that that never takes last place in our celebrating over uh, other things, because that's what we need to do, thanks Absolutely. to all right. of the veterans who make sure we have what we have today. Well, thank you, Jim. As always, good to chat with you and catch up on some of the challenges we have, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week, okay? 
You bet. Look forward to it, Orion. Jim Fazell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture, here on the Saturday Morning Show. For the past several weeks, I've been getting emails and phone calls with the same basic message. What is this cool, wet, late-planting spring going to do to our favorite sweet corn, Mirai? So we're going right to the man who can tell us, Gary Pack, Twin Garden Farms. Good morning to you. Good morning, Arian. How you doing? Well, I'm doing good, but the big question is, how are you doing? You know, everybody I've talked to in agriculture, from market analysts to researchers to farmers, they've all said they've never seen a spring like this. How about you? That's uh, 100% true, and and I, you know, I like to think I'm a youngster, but I'm not anymore. And and I remember Grandpa talking about this is the worst ever, this is the worst ever, and and I I think sometimes yeah right yeah right, but you know I we have never been through a spring like this uh, in the vegetable business and in the seed business. So take um, me through your schedule in a normal spring. How many different times do you plant me rice sweet corn to have? crop available into October? We, uh, probably about 24 different plantings, and in each one of those plantings would have a yellow and a bicolor mirai in them. So um, it would be about 24 plantings. And when were you able to start this year, and are you uh, still trying to catch up? Yes. Um, we we started the first week in May. We were able to put a, a patch in, and we're fortunate enough to do that. And so we're gonna we're gonna get started about a week late this year. But the and and it's been a miracle basically because we've got basically all the plantings in that that we planned on. And so we would increase a planting or decrease a planting depending on how big the the previous one was. Mirai holds really well, so the quality stays, and so we can play that game a little bit. Uh, I think the it, it like I said, it's like a miracle that we've gotten as far as we have. But right now, after this morning, our last planting is the one that's going to be the, in the most jeopardy because we need to to get our last planting in by Wednesday or Thursday, the fourth of July, for it to be uh, viable in the fall. Well, the one bright spot I can give you, uh, Greg Solier, who does our agricultural weather on our television show this week in agribusiness, we asked him a week ago what it looked like from an early frost standpoint. He said, right now, I don't see anything pointing to an early frost. So that is probably the one good news we can come out uh, for the crop year yes, so far. Yes, that would be wonderful for us, wonderful for our seed uh, production, and also wonderful for many others that I've been hearing talk about the same thing. So let's talk about the interesting market you've developed, because we have it here at home, but we have it from consumers in other countries, like where? Uh, in Japan, they, they they do a really nice job of... Uh, of um, producing uh, fresh mirai sweet corn and taking it to the market. Most of their markets are uh, for food and fresh food are auctions, and they do a lot of, uh, uh, like, I would I would uh, explain it much like our farmer's markets, but you turn our farmer's markets into auctions. So there's quite a bit of that, and they, they do really well with that. Um, there is some, some mirai seed in uh, Europe, and um, just... But you know it's not a really big volumes. Uh, Japan is the is the major international market for us, and uh, everything else sort of fills in in between. 
Well, I remember being at Twin Garden Farms one day when the Japanese buyers were actually here to take a look at the crop. Do they do that often? Yes, yes. They We've got them scheduled for, I think, 14th, 15th of August again this year. They'll come in and see the condition of the seed and and uh, just have our meetings and, and just renew our friendships and, and the business relationship that we have with them. And a little bit of history, how far back do we go with the development of Mibri, and how many crosses did it take to get it? We, uh, it took about seven crosses, and actually the uh, Dave McKenzie, the breeder that we were working with, um, it had never worked before with the three different sweet corn genes, and in this case it did, and uh, it just was uh, something that, that was just a nice find and and when he brought it into grandpa that was that was all it took for him to jump on band interesting history but now then let's get back to the phone calls and the emails what's the schedule for mirai showing up at farmers markets or at your stand in harvard illinois what's the schedule looking like we, we usually try to get started by the 22nd 23rd of july and i we're looking right now Best case scenario, probably 28th, 29th of July. Um, last week, this time, I would have say I would have said that uh, that's might not make it, but we've got some really nice heat units in the last few days, and and that's the key because it doesn't matter how many days; it's the heat units that will make uh, make the crop. So Mirai likes 90 degree temperatures. 90 and under, yes, not too hot, but 90 and under, you bet. Uh, the warm nights, uh, you know, uh, Grandpa taught us, you know, the warm nights is what, what turns the crop on. And last, driving in this morning was 70 degrees, and I uh, thought to myself, this is this is what it takes. So um, we just keep watching the website with our with our, our daily counter, um, our countdown to Mirai, and, and uh, we try not to change it too much. But, again, as you well know, uh, it's not an exact science. So the closer we get, the more accurate we can get. And a couple of questions that listeners have. What kind of equipment do you use to plant it, and what kind of equipment do you use to harvest it? We, we uh, years ago, uh, uh, started using what they call the Monosome Air Planter, and I think some of the domestic uh, manufacturers have caught on to the air aspect. But we still use a German-made uh, Monosome Planter that singulates the seed, and then we use the good old... Uh, hands to harvest it because it's we haven't found a machine that treats it gentle enough to get it to the consumer without uh, it being cream corn so you have people who come out and pick the ears off the stalks yes yes we have a crew that that picks by hand and and uh, that's been other than the weather it's the the labor is the more challenging aspect of the business nowadays yeah, I was going to say, who wants to walk through a cornfield on a hot day pulling ears off stalks? Yep, you bet, and then leaving their shoes behind in the mud and, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. Yes, we, we take the tops of the corn off so that they can get air. You know, you're not walking in the cornfield uh, being covered. You're you're out in the open air. So, and it works pretty good. We, we've got a great crew, and, and uh, but again, it's, it's the, the labor's the challenge nowadays. So will your sweet corn stand at Harvard be the first to have it on the market for this year? Yes, we're, the plan the plan is to go to uh, the, we start the, the first planting would have enough corn to go to the to the uh, farmers markets and the uh, the roadside market in Harvard here. If something happens, it's not a big enough yield to start with, or because of whatever reason, then we would just try to communicate through 
through you guys the best we can, and, and Harvard would have it first, yes. But our plan is to go to all the markets that are listed on the website and the roadside in Harvard at the same time. How many farmers markets do you now sell your Mirai sweet corn? We've got just in the high 30s right now. Again, that's a labor thing. Um, it takes a lot of uh, work to uh, to get trucks and people to the markets. So uh, we're going to try to get to 40 right now. I think there's 37 or 38 on the website. How early do you start picking on the day of a farmer's market? Well, that's that's a great question, and and, and honestly, uh, what I they. The customers ask me at the roadside, was this picked today? And I say no. And they look at me like I'm crazy. We, we pick day before. We give it a nice cold freshwater shower, and then we put it through the, in the cooler overnight, and then it goes to the market the next first thing in the morning because when you leave for the market at 3 or 4 in the morning, you and I both know that we didn't pick that that morning. Right. And uh, the other thing, of course, that we know that I know from fact, you don't have to cook the Mirai sweet corn. You can eat it right off the cob, which we have done many times because of the flavor and because of the consistency. It's always good. Right, and it does, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about Mirai, it doesn't get tough, and, and it stays, uh, you know, we guarantee it, once you buy it from us, we guarantee it for a week with, uh, if you keep it in the refrigerator and in the husk, we have no qualms, it are just, there's no questions asked, it's guaranteed for a week at least. Well, my friend, it's one of the highlights of the summer for those of us fortunate enough to live close to the Twin Gardens Farm. So uh, from here on out, we hope that Mother Nature cooperates and uh, all of us will look forward to enjoying Mirai. So keep it coming. We will. We'll do the best we can and then we enjoy it too. And I always tell everybody I'm the luckiest guy around because I get to take it home for supper every night. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) Thank you very much, Gary Pack. Twin Garden Farms, the story of Mirai Sweet Corn, here on the Saturday Morning Show. Yes, and I'm managing to stay dry. I'm not hearing rain on the rooftops yet here, but uh, in Huntley, Sun City, where the sun is not shining yet this morning, but uh, certainly hearing more thunder activity out there, and uh, so I would guess we'll get a drop or two of rain before this one passes over, but it looks like a brief one. But if you're going to a farmer's market in our area, and of course we have one here in Huntley, you may want to take an um this morning so stay dry out there saturday morning show at 25 minutes before six o'clock and uh, before we get to markets and crop conditions welcome to samuelson says i'm orion and this morning a few more thoughts on labeling time for discussion on food labeling because here we go again False labeling in the food industry. Now, I thought we had taken care of that over a year ago when USDA made the announcement that if you're going to call it milk, it has to come from a dairy cow. Or it could come from female sheep or goats as well. And yet, recently, I have been seeing ads on television advertising soy milk. Now, I have nothing against soybean producers or almond producers. As a matter of fact, they're an important part of our food chain. But it is not milk. It is a beverage. 
It does not come from a female dairy cow, and yet we continue to use that labeling when we should be calling it a beverage, not milk. I don't know what happened to the rules, but I don't think they're being followed, and I hope we will get to the point where we do follow them. But of course, now we're coming into the false meat advertising. I have no problem with consumers having a choice, a free choice to eat what you want and drink what you want. I have no problem with vegans because farmers grow vegetables and green plants as well. But beyond meat products should not be in the meat counter of your supermarket. It should be in the produce area since it does not contain meat, just like beverage made from soybeans or other plants should not be in the dairy case. They should be put separately and should be labeled, well, how about laboratory milk or laboratory meat? Oh, and I have one final question for vegans. Why, if you don't want to eat meat or drink milk, do you want it to look like meat, to cook like meat, and to taste like meat? And why do you want it to look like milk? Maybe we should color it green, since it's plant-based. Those are my thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Network's Max Armstrong standing by to talk markets when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Clayton Pope, Clayton Pope Commodities at the microphone with us this weekend. I don't want to do too much Monday morning quarterbacking here or burying, but the faith, the confidence in National Ag Statistics Service reports had to fade dramatically in the past few days with that June report. You don't want to be in the way of a June report either, do you? Boy, isn't that the truth? Anything to do with these early planning reports, they've always been infamous for just uh, making a lot of people mad and shocking the trade. You know, Starting with the, Mar- the, the March 31st tradition, you know, the prospective plannings report, you know, it always rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But I, I think this latest round of uh, angst over it is a little misguided, if you ask me. I mean, number one, I mean, good grief, if the, are these guys up to a Herculean task here or what? Really difficult, I think, to, to get a grasp of the situation. Uh, i got to think they're doing the best they can. And I think, to a large extent, the trade's kind of shooting the messenger just because it's not what they wanted to hear. Some people suggested that report should not have been released, the acreage report, given the tentative nature the uh, very late planting. Are you in that camp? I'm not. I, I mean, let's go for it. You, you know, you can't just shut down because uh, it, it's too hard of a task. I think you got to make your best effort. Now, we live with these numbers for several weeks now. That's the thing. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, we live with them. Um, as we all know, the, the private estimates that will always be coming out don't carry you near the, the weight to the market that the official USDA numbers do. But uh, I think just judging or you know, looking at the situation in terms of prevent plant and, and the way the, the, the survey was conducted, you know, the actual wording of the questions, uh, you know, we're really going to have to wait a long time. So even this resurvey that they're going to do, uh, that's still going to leave a lot of questions unanswered. And it really looks like we're going to have to wait for those final crop insurance filings to come in. And as we all know by now, it takes a long time for those to kind of slowly filter in. So, yeah, we're in a long-term discovery process here. The resurvey numbers will be coming out as a part of the August report, right? Covering more than a dozen states? That's what I understand, yeah. 13 or 14 states, and uh, it'll be, I think it's the August 12th supply and demand will be on that. 
for that producer who's holding on for some real market mover here to the positive side, what do you tell them? Well, our, our attitude here as risk managers is um, more than ever before, uh, we try not to, to recommend a cookie-cutter approach for risk management. I mean, it really depends on what your own particular situation looks like. You've got to go out there and assess your crop. Uh, if, if you do have a decent-looking crop, or, and, and again, you have to break that down. Obviously, some people have some great-looking fields. Some people have some disastrous fields. But, you know, try to get a realistic handle on your production. And, and I think uh, you, you really need to you know, feed the market here on the production that you have some semblance of certainty on. I realize there's a huge growing season ahead of us time-wise, and this crop is fragile at best. But even that being said, I, I think uh, th- there have been, and, and even at the moment here, there, there's opportunities that we never dreamt would be here uh, two months ago. And, and I think uh, it, it's, it's wise to take a little bit of risk off the table as those opportunities present themselves. I, I just caution customers and listeners to uh, don't drink this bullish Kool-Aid completely because it's very easy to get swept up in it and think, oh, I'd be an idiot to sell right now because who knows what we're going to. And the fact of the matter is, if, if you can lock in a, a, a decent profit on something that you never dreamt was possible two or three months ago, why not? Has there been too much looking out the kitchen window here? Has that been sort of fostering that sentiment among, among producers that there's a rip-roaring rally out there somewhere? Yes, uh, that, that's always a, a pitfall, I think, you know, for the grower. But uh, understandably so, though. I mean, here I, uh, you know, it's funny, in, in other years sometimes, you know, you step outside and, you know, it's 95 degrees and it's blistering hot. You can't help but have that affect your psyche and the way you look at things. But um, the the fact is, though, Max, it, it's amazing. This year, I mean, we've got offices throughout the growing uh, area, a number of offices in a number of states. And i, I got to say that I've been in this business a long time, and, and uh, there aren't many times when I've heard you know eyewitness accounts of just how bad it is, is this year. So uh, even though there's a lot of backwarditis, i got to say this backwarditis is very widespread. The geography is impressive, isn't it? When you look at the expanse that is covered by, uh, by poor crops and late-planted crops. Now, yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling, really. We looked at the weekly crop bulletin, and this week it showed no improvement whatsoever in the condition of the corn and soybean crops. No decline in the condition rating. Still somewhere in the neighborhood of 40-45%. No better than fair. Right, okay. You know, fair, poor, or very poor, right mm-hmm. around 44 mm-hmm. 45%. This kind of weather that we have here, and, and 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 we're not used to studying crops this immature with this kind of heat at this stage in the calendar, right? I mean, when That's you take a sure. look at it, and is it good or bad at this point? I mean, people talk about greenhouse conditions. That's what you want right now, isn't mm-hmm. it, at this early stage for many of these plants? Well, plenty of moisture and... The heat has turned on. Well, that's the crazy thing. I mean, in spite of the way we stumbled out of the starting block here, think the, the, the weather right now is pretty picture perfect for those that do have it planted. Again, if you ignore the calendar, you know, everybody's worried about, you know, what happens when this stuff has to pollinate it. The last half or last week of July, first week of August, you know, when the sun starts to shut down later on for beans and so forth and so on. Uh, it, it, there's you know, uncertainties that we've just never really had to deal with before. And then, uh, obviously, the talk of you know, early frost risk and that kind of thing. But um, add it all together, and uh, even though we have some you know, excellent conditions right now, I think everybody would be in agreement that, that both the corn and soybean crops, given the, the late start and the, and the nasty conditions, uh, it, it's it's fragile, extremely fragile. And uh, even though conditions are good right now, it wouldn't take a very long spell 
uh, of those conditions, you know, winding down uh, before I think the trade could get real excited again. Late season weather is going to be more important than ever before, isn't it? I mean, the weather on into September, yeah, October, absolutely. perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I think so, definitely. So it's kind of frustrating because it's kind of like hurry up and wait. And uh, I think it's we really have no choice because, number one, we have still really a very poor handle on what the heck the acres are. It's still a work in progress, actually. Um, and then the yield is uh, really completely still to be deper- determined. Farmer commented this week, uh, I spent four months planting. <laughs> I'll be spending probably at least four months harvesting, he oh, figures. Brother. When you take a look at uh, the scenario out there, this price setback, has it encouraged the end users at all? Has there been some buying uh, overseas or buying, uh, you know, by those who are going to need that? That's a great question because I think uh, this whole question of elasticity of demand is, is huge right now, especially as it pertains to the corn market. Uh, to, to answer your question directly, n- no, I, I'm not seeing any sign of a big pickup in demand. I mean, the weekly export sales are really the best barometer we have, and they're nothing to write home about, and certainly the inspections aren't either. But, um, you know, a lot of the models where people you know trying to project what the ending stocks will be for corn, you know, down the road and, you know, for the new crop, um, th- there's varying approaches to it, but an awful lot of people, I think, made the mistake of they cut production by, you know, whatever, let's say a billion bushels, and then they leave demand unchanged. Well, that's not realistic because I think over the long term, historically, uh, for every bushel that you see cut back in production, you'll typically see something like oh, 60 to 75 percent of an offsetting reduction in, in usage as well. However, for that to, to unfold that way, presumably you have to have higher prices to, to cause that elasticity of demand to choke off demand. And yet when we see this market fall out of bed like it has been recently, there's no reason to see any uh, cut, you know, corresponding to cut back in usage. So I think what this might do is it, it kind of forces the whole price discovery mechanism to, to look further down the road, and uh, whereas everybody kind of wanted to see that reward right up front, and it was there for a while, but now it's disappeared again as markets have receded, um, you know, we could be looking at a tighter situation in the last half of this new crop year, uh, because if and when we're going to have tight stocks, that's when it would be, especially if prices stay low and we don't cut demand off at all. So. It's going to be a real complex situation going forward. Is there the feeling that there's going to be, again, big production in South America? And does that uh, blunt this whole discussion a little bit? Does that temper any enthusiasm about seeing stocks pull down? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the world carryover, if you look at a stocks to usage ratio chart and corn and especially beans, uh, as tight as things might pencil out here domestically in the U.S., uh, it, it, it's, it's certainly cut back on that world uh, carryover, but, but it's still pretty burdensome for both corn and beans, and there lies the problem. Clayton, thanks for coming into the studio again. Always my pleasure. We'll see you down the road, but maybe this picture is a little clearer. Let's hope so. <laughs> Clayton Pope. Clayton Pope Commodities. Ten minutes before six o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, and so far, it's been a dry thunderstorm outside my studios in Huntley, Illinois. And um, looking at my rain gauge, not seeing anything showing up there yet, but indeed we are hearing thunder, but kind of just a small red spot on the radar screen this morning. So uh, we're not going to let Max uh, go away just yet because he's got to come back with us now for that uh, weekly BASF report. Max? 
Time for our weekly visit with one of the technical service representatives at BASF. Jody Bo is joining us. Uh, Jody, one thing we keep keep hearing from folks when we talk to them is they talk about the weeds. I mean, we we're all hearing about the lack of maturity of the crops, but uh, you don't have to talk with the producer very long before you get around to the subject of weeds and, in some instances, the inability to spray in a timely manner. What are growers telling you? The same thing. I've been getting a lot of calls lately of, A, what to do on my acres that I've not planted anything on yet. So what do I do with giant giant ragweed and giant mare's tail? But then also, what do I do with big weeds in my crop? Um, so it's been a really common question this season and not surprising at all considering the cold and wet spring we had. Are we getting behind? In other words, are are the weeds getting to the point where they're going to be difficult to control and then also uh, help bring about a a drag on the yield? Um, You know, for the most part, what I've observed in northern Illinois and Wisconsin, I'd say farmers have actually done a pretty good job of controlling weeds. Um, I look across a lot of the corn acres and where corn has just been put in. um, Farmers have done a great job of taking care of what's already come up. And then if... You know, corn's been planted for a while and no herbicide applications have been made. Yes, it is absolutely the time to take care of it and make sure that weeds aren't out there robbing our yield. So especially, again, if if you're in an area with giant ragweed, really take caution and take action now because giant ragweed is one of those weeds that really does do a number um, in terms of reducing yield. What kind of a program are you recommending now to the growers you're visiting with? Yeah, so looking at corn specifically, um, if they are past V2, I recommend if they've got really or large, I should say, broad leaves like water hemp or giant ragweed, I'd recommend making an application of status herbicide along with glyphosate. Um, and then for soybeans, um, depending on what kind of system they're running, so whether or not they've got dicamba tolerant beans or they've got Liberty Link beans, um, for dicamba, of course, I'd recommend an application of Agenia, especially to take care of um, broadleaf weeds like water hemp in soybean, which has, again, been a big problem perennially. And then uh, for Liberty Link, of course, um, applying Liberty herbicide. And what I want to reiterate with uh, Liberty applications is making sure that farmers are out or applicators are out making applications when it's really sunny, really hot. So these, this past week of really great high humidity and high temperature conditions are great opportunities for making Liberty herbicide applications. Have you been talking with growers much about fungicides? Yes. This past week has been pretty big in terms of looking at the conditions that have been conducive for disease development. So the past couple of days, so last Thursday and Friday, there have been some rumors milling around that tar spot may have been seen. We've not seen anything confirmed thus far, but the conduce early, the conditions of 60 to 70 degrees and high humidity, those are perfect for growth of tar spot. And also northern corn leaf blight, when we've got corn, um, that's in about the V6 growth stage. So what I want to reiterate is make sure you're out and you're diligent about scouting, making sure you're out looking for the disease, knowing what it looks like. Um, and if you see it or if you're in an area that had a high presence of either disease last year, consider making a plant health application, specifically before castle. We always like to go out with preaxor and corn. Um, and then, again, just being diligent about scouting, making sure you, you know what's out there. But also with the pre-castle fundicide application, we can see a little bit of peace of mind knowing that our crops protected from, from diseases.
at least until Castle. Jody, we appreciate the visit as always. Nice talking to you. Travel safely along those rural roads of the heartland as you're out there visiting with producers. Thank you, Max. Jody Bo, technical service representative for BASF. Couple of minutes to news time here on WGN Radio, but we do get a report next week. The monthly World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report. We call it WASDE Report for short. It will be out on July 11th. And Robert Johansson, the department's chief economist at USDA, said that uh, it will reflect numbers from its most recent June acreage report. It will also take into account information such as weekly crop progress data and will be more, quote, refined than reports published in the past couple of months. And then, of course, USDA plans to conduct one of its largest ever resurveys for planting this month. It will collect updated information on 2019 planted acres for corn, cotton, sorghum, and soybeans in 14 states. So where did we end the um, one trading day after the fourth yesterday? Grain market, July wheat ended a penny lower. But September wheat ended two and a half cents higher. July corn and September corn both up two and a half cents a bushel. Soybeans, though, down yesterday with the July contract down 13 cents. September soybeans down 14 and three quarters. Mercantile exchange, livestock futures, the August well, let's make it the October lean hog contract, down $2.67 a hundredweight. But the cattle market traded higher yesterday. The October live cattle contract up a dollar seventy-seven, and the October feeder cattle contract up a dollar forty cents a hundredweight. Well, that's our time for our weekly get-together here on the Saturday Morning Show. Thank you for joining us uh, every week as we talk food production. Thanks to Bob Ferguson, our engineer, for doing all of the work that I don't have to do. He just flaked. Uh, flip switches and makes it all happen so uh, we'll see you throughout the week of course uh, on our daily reports and then we'll be back next saturday morning orian samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on wgn hear his reports weekday mornings on the steve cochran show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust business lunch plus catch orian and max on saturday mornings at 5 a.m only on chicago's wgn radio 720 